Greetings, comrades, and welcome to another episode of the Comrade Cast. And today, as promised, we are going to be talking about that coup. The sweet coup that never was. The coup that whispered sweet nothings in our ears. Or, as I entitled our mini-episode about it, the Purgosian Implosion. A title which I am honestly very, very proud of, just because goddamn, it just rolls off the tongue. I was hoping that today there might be something more in terms of details that might have emerged, but really nothing so far. So we'll probably take the first little bit to catch up, and then the rest of the episode will be us speculating wildly. But as you guys might be able to tell, I am a big fan of the Khrushchev look. I've always admired his style. That is, that no matter where he is or what exactly he's wearing, always looks like he just woke up in it. But before we begin today, I just want to briefly touch on a few things from the last episode, which was a very fun one. It's always good to stir the pot a little bit. Yes, of course, you do get some shit all over you. But it's worth it, in my opinion. While I don't like to lean into and spend a lot of time talking about culture war issues on the show, I do think it is important to occasionally bring them up and address them because it is a battlefield that a lot of our politics are unfortunately fought on these days. But overall, I'm much more interested in talking about geopolitics, history, economic trends and forces and where they're leading us to in the future those kind of things are far more interesting and compelling to me and the whole goal of the episode last time was the fight in and of itself because in the immortal words of Moomin Rider the act of defiance, the act of fighting back, the act of countering the narrative, which is predominant here on YouTube, is an important act in and of itself. Because let me tell you guys something. If people will remember one thing, it will always be the fight. It is very true what they say. Fight or be forgotten. So I think it's important to every so often take a moment and fight for the values which I find important and throwing down a little bit in the comments in that episode helped give me some insights actually for an episode that may come next week or the week after depending on things that are happening but now that i've set out a, a lot of my positions in various episodes i think i can do an episode where i can talk about issues where i actually deviate from what you may consider to be orthodox left-wing thinking and how someone might go about debating or arguing or having disagreements among the left and among sensitive issues without actually undermining the broader political goals that we're trying to achieve. So, without further ado, let's jump into what we know since the Purgosian implosion. All right, so I'm going to try and catch you guys up as quickly as I possibly can. Again, we're probably going to do something similar to last time. Got some various bullet points that we're going to probably blow through pretty quick. But let me tell you what's been happening. First, on a very interesting note, I think this is a fascinating indicator. I don't usually like to spend a lot of time 
going over like currency analysis and what currencies are strong and weak and so on and so forth. However, since this little rebellion, the Russian currency has been in an absolute free fall. Right now, it stands at 86 rubles to the US dollar. That means one US dollar will get you around 86 rubles in comparison to this time at a year ago, where one US dollar would buy you 51.1 rubles. So your US dollar is buying twice as many as it did about a year ago. In any case, as you can see, things have slowly been degrading for the ruble, and then you have a huge spike here where, yeah, they've just been degrading in value. And I know it looks like it's it's going up, right? This is the U.S. dollar in comparison to the ruble, right? So the U.S. dollar is getting stronger in comparison to it because it's getting weaker. Just just work clear on the graph. And again, trying to be more cognizant of people who might be listening in an audio format. So obviously this has shaken international perceptions of Russia and international perceptions of Russian stability and has done a little bit of further number on their currency. I'm actually curious, before we move on here, let's see, well, if we move it to the 10 years, this is the lowest it's ever been. Oh, when was the lowest? Okay, right at the beginning of the invasion, it looks like it was just the lowest that it's ever been. But yeah, I, I just thought it'd be interesting to, to maybe just go over that larger field. In any case, let's move on. The one thing I do want to say about this coup in particular is that we are now in a new territory in regards to modern Russian politics, not necessarily pre-modern Russian politics, but particularly for Russian politics in the 21st century. So normally... When it comes to using a source like BBC to cover Russia, I don't think that they are the best source for covering Russia, to be quite honest. A lot of Western news agencies, at least in their analysis, I think, fail to grasp some of the finer points of Russian culture and Russian history. Everyone was making fun of it. And let's be fair, like rightly, the CNN coverage of the coup where they're like, it's over, bros. Pack her up. Putin's done. War in Ukraine's over. And I'm like, okay, let's not get ahead of ourselves here. There's a whole lot of question marks, a whole lot of balls in play. Or you'll see people out there saying, this is the beginning of the end for Putin. And I got to be fair, I can't make this kind of comments. I don't know if this is the beginning of the end for Putin. But what I do think is definitely fair for us to say at this point is that we are in a new territory for Putin. And particularly why I bring up this article where it says it shows real cracks in Putin's authority. And there is a reason for that. So much so that I would actually believe a, a more Western-leaning source to comment on, on such a thing about the Russian population and opinion. Then the reason for that being is that in this case, we are seeing a new challenge to Putin's power. We're not seeing some sort of Western-backed academic pontificating about the human rights abuses of the Russian system, right? The kind of opposition that has been and continues to be a very big part of the anti-Putin coalition in Russia, which you consider academics, people in more metropolitan areas, people who have relatives in Western countries, that kind of thing. These people have been anti-Putin for a long time. He's never needed their support to maintain power, doesn't care about him. This challenge is a different in kind because Putin is being challenged 
by someone who is challenging him on his strong man, keeping things together, keeping the ship afloat, no matter what type of image, which he has been carefully crafting over the last two decades or so. This is the first time that we could really see a challenge to Putin's authority from a group which you would definitely consider to be more aligned with the political right. Because not only has Wagner managed to gain an association of being a hard-nosed group of military men, they have gained an association for being a group of particularly effective hard-nosed military men. And this attitude has at least somewhat permeated into the Russian population. It's very unclear at this point to say how much and to what extent, but there is certainly a sizable chunk of the population that sees Wagner as one of their kind of saving graces in this war in Ukraine. One of the most interesting videos, and we'll show it to one of the most interesting videos that emerged after this coup is what happened when Prigozhin and Wagner returned to Rostov-on-Don. This one is from Radio Free Europe, an American-funded organization, but I'm sure you guys have seen, if you've been following this, you've probably seen this video a couple different times. So let's watch. So honestly, to me, it's, that's a pretty disturbing video because these guys are being treated like freaking rock stars in Rostov-on-Don. And of course, it's always good to remind ourselves that obviously this is not the entirety of the population. They're not all out there, but seeing a crowd like that in, in Edmonton would be a, a tough thing. <laughs> the Oilers have to be in the Stanley Cup playoffs type of thing to draw that kind of crowd outside. There's enough people to obviously flood the streets and take up pretty much all the space on either side. As you can see, people are kind of rushing his, his car to get photographs of him and stuff like that. And the most interesting thing to me is they're cheering Wagner, Wagner, Wagner. They're not cheering Russia or for Russia or something like that. They're cheering specifically for the mercenary group Wagner. And that to me is what is, again, the most disturbing aspect of this whole thing. And the point here is not to say, obviously, that Wagner's great and that they're a wonderful organization, but it's to say that they have obviously managed to garner a sizable base of support within the country of Russia. It's a very open question how big that base of support is, but it's, it's enough, I would say it's probably enough to definitely be in like double digits, right? 
who knows how definitely we're not talking majority, but again, enough of the people to make an impact on political decision-making. If you follow another YouTube channel, a guy I've brought up before, Vlad Vexler, who does a lot of great videos about Russia and about Ukraine. One of the things he emphasizes is that Russia is generally made up of two, or excuse me, made up of three separate people in terms of their opinions in regards to the war. You have the anti-war, you have the anti-war quarter of the population. They make up about 25% and they're vehemently against the war in Ukraine. Then you have the pro-war, super ultra-nationalist, super hardcore Russia forever type of people. And they make up another 25%. Then you have the apathetic 50% left over in the middle. And what's interesting here is that Putin has generally been able to at least count on the, maybe not the whole raw, raw support of this ultra-nationalist group, but definitely their tepid support when it came to election time and political engineering and that sort of thing. And what my guess as to what is happening here is that sort of quarter of the Russian population who is that ultra-nationalist mindset is now rather, instead of supporting Putin, starting to begin to support Wagner or at least elements outside of Putin. And I think that given Russian history, that is something that should definitely concern Putin. But again, I would be very interested to know how much this mindset is reflected in the rest of Russia. Is Rostov on Don very pro-Wagner because they're very close to the border and obviously very affiliated with the war? They've probably been seeing military convoys going in and out of that city for well over a year now. Whereas maybe over in uh, Vladivostok, over on the other end of Russia, where the war is a very, very distant prospect to them, it would be interesting to measure the amount of support that Wagner shares out in those more isolated and distant areas from the war. So Putin, I think, is definitely shaken. His authority is shaken. Is it shaken to the point where we're going to see a collapse? That, I honestly can't say at this point. So let's move on. So here is a development which has officially happened since we last talked about this. All charges look like they have now been officially dropped. There was a little bit of kind of like a lull period between the coup ending and these charges actually being officially dropped. There was a, a time where it seemed like they might not actually be dropped as part of what we know of this kind of handshake deal that took place between Kojin and Lushenko and Putin. So now it does look like we can officially say this. And we and another thing that we can officially say is that part of Wagner forces are being folded into the Russian military, something which has been planned to have happened on July 1st, something we're going to touch a little bit more on when I want to talk about some of the motivations of this of this coup. But for now, we can say at least some of the Wagner troops are being folded into the Russian army proper, at least the ones that are voluntarily signing contracts with the Russian army. However, there certainly remains to be a hardcore group of Wagner soldiers, which are not joining the Russian military 
and are supposedly being exiled to Belarus, but we have not as much evidence for that. Again, we'll get to that. In the meantime, though, what isn't clear, because again, we're going to be using a source that I don't like, which is a Russian news agency source right here from TASS. Again, very big, very big disclaimer, right? Russian news agency source, they are reporting that Wagner is beginning to hand over its heavy equipment to Russian troops. Again, is this actually happening? This is certainly something as Putin, you would want to get out there, right? You, you don't want the image of these hardened mercenaries having very advanced military hardware traipsing around, particularly after they threatened your rule in a very direct and forefront way. You don't want them to be having heavy military equipment because, and, and this is something like when you see what the Russian news agencies are, are talking about, particularly right after this Wagner rebellion, they wanted blood, right? And you can understand the sentiment because Wagner at this point, we believe has confirmed to have killed at least 13 Russian airmen and of course, half a dozen helicopters and a communications plane, of course, human lives, irreplaceable. And then you have the military equipment, which is however many hundreds of thousands of dollars, which was destroyed, particularly at a time when, when Russia is very reliant and very needing of those attack helicopters, which it lost. The whole thing to say here is right. That's not nothing. Lives lost, military equipment lost. That's real damage. And the fact that Wagner isn't paying for it is leaving some bitter tastes in a few mouths to say the least. So while Russia is reporting that Wagner is complying with handing over their military equipment. We'll take it with a big grain of salt for now, but let's move on to our next bullet point, which is we have Lukashenko confirming that Prigozhin is in Belarusia, having a verbal confirmation from the president. However, we still don't have any actual third-party video evidence of Prigozhin being in Belarusia. We haven't actually seen him there as far as we can see. We have had a public address from him. I'm not really going to play it or talk about it too much because I, I don't think it's hugely important. Basically, he was trying to backtrack a little bit what he did and justify his actions. But the point here being is that we don't know exactly where he recorded that statement from. Because, interestingly enough, not only do we have no evidence that Prigozhin is in Belarusia, just of course, but you got to take Lukashenko's word for it, which is about as solid as a soup sandwich, as they like to say. One of the things he also said, in addition to saying that Prigozhin is in Belarusia, is that Wagner mercenaries who aren't signing on with the Russian Ministry of Defense are welcome to stay in Belarusia for some time at their own expense, is how he framed it. However, and at the point in time we're recording this video, interestingly enough, we have this report here. And again, this is from a Ukrainian news outlet. I'm wanting to make sure you guys know where these sources are coming from. You can, again, try and ascertain their value at, at your own discretion. But this is coming from a Ukrainian news source. Basically, what they are saying here, and this is cut off. Yeah, I did cut off the headline here. So this is coming from Ukrainian border guards who are looking over into the territory of Belarusia 
and saying that there is no evidence of Wagner mercenaries appearing in the place that Likushenko said they would. We're not seeing any evidence of camps, nothing being built, nothing being moved in. So again, this is coming from Ukrainian border guards who are working on the border between Ukraine and Belarus. So again, you got to take it for what it is. But I do think it's interesting that to this point, we have no visual, we have no confirmation of Prigozhin actually being in Belarus or Wagner Group as a whole being in Belarus. So despite this is one of the key elements of this whatever handshake verbal deal that they've negotiated, we still don't have the actual evidence of it. And to be fair, this this could all change in a couple of days as of recording this. But again, coming to you with what I know at the time. So let's move into some maybe more fun things here. Shout out to Corpse God, another Discord member. And I will leave a link down below this time in case people want to join and help us try and figure out what the hell's happening in Ukraine and maybe share some funny memes along the way. This one's out here. This one is shout out to Corpse God. So far, my favorite meme to have emerged from this whole escapade here. It says, I'll just read it out for people who are listening. Mr. Putinheimer, your mercenary company led by someone who looks like a villain from an FPS game and whose banner is an evil red and black skull has done something unforeseen. <laughs> you have like him uh, looking very seriously worried. But yeah, it is it is funny kind of when you break it down. Oh my God, how could, how could this guy do something crazy like this? So anyway, let's move on to some actual, like I promised, wild speculation in regards to what has happened in Russia. So I've seen a couple of theories emerge about why this coup happened, what Prigozhin's motivations were, what he was hoping to achieve. And I'm going to list them starting in the order that I think is the most likely or maybe the most common theory that I've seen. And then we're kind of going to go to an iceberg, going to go to more and more crazy speculation as we go deeper. So theory number one, Prigozhin saw the writing on the wall that Wagner and quite possibly his time was up. So this was a last ditch Hail Mary to avoid being purged. And maybe that's a little bit hyperbolic. I don't know if he would have actually have been purged. Essentially, what was happening was that Putin and the Russian Ministry of Defense had made a decree that Wagner was to be folded into the overall Ministry of Defense. Prigozhin was not too much of a fan of this notion, particularly given that him and Shoigu, the current Minister of Defense for Russia, hate each other's guts. <laughs> One of Prigozhin's hopes with this whole stunt was to try and somehow remove Shoigu from power. So in order to stop this from happening, he basically said, I'm going to roll the die. I'm, I'm taking my, my troops, my convoy, and we're going to make one last ditch, one last Hail Mary attempt on Moscow. And maybe this will scare Putin enough or, or someone enough into spooking them into giving me a deal or some sort of terms that I can get out of here and save my own skin. And I would think that this is probably the theory that I'm coming around to the most. I'm, I'm less of what I guess the next theory is and, and, and what we will talk about as the next one, which was my, my theory last time. But I'm beginning to think more and more that, yeah, this is effectively what he was trying to do. He was trying to either prevent or postpone or otherwise get better terms from him because that's Prigozhin, that is, trying to get better terms from Putin in order to prevent or delay the dissolution of Wagner 
because with the dissolution of Wagner, very likely comes the dissolution of Prigozhin's power overall. And people don't like to give up power, you know? And <laughs> once they have it, they like to hold on to it. And quite possibly, if this theory is correct, that Prigozhin himself had no idea how far he would get and how successful he would be marching into Rostov and Don, maybe he knew the kind of temperature of the area a little bit better and that he would have support there and that he had made connections there among high-ranking officials during his time fighting in Ukraine. Doubt that he expected to be able to effectively take the entire district without firing a shot and then to be able to make it so close to Moscow with almost no resistance. <laughs> this goes to show that effectively Russia has very few domestic security forces. One of the things we didn't talk about at the time is that when Wagner was marching, the Russian Ministry of Defense was scrambling to Airbus troops in from all over Russia into Moscow to defend the city. It's not exactly an ideal situation to be in, and Prigozhin and Wagner could have never, ever gotten this far in non-war time, right? Because the Russian military would be much more alert and much more able to stop them. They wouldn't have almost all their resources dedicated to fighting Ukraine. So if this is the case, I doubt that he had any idea that he would get this far. And then when he actually got the deal that he was seeking, he, he, he took it very quickly and without too much pushback because this was his, his real goal all along and he didn't really need to, to push for anything more. So that's theory number one. Number two, Prigozhin wanted to seize power and was put up to it either by another benefactor in Russia or believed that he had enough on-the-ground support. However, ultimately got cold feet. So again, what we talked about last time, potentially some sort of benefactor who he was working with behind the scenes that was telling him that he would have support or more support that if he were to march on the city or even if there was no benefactor and he was acting alone, maybe he had some sort of feeling on the ground that he thought that he would have more support than he actually did and that he would actually have a realistic shot at overthrowing the government if he seized the opportunity. I've seen a lot of conflicting reports on whether or not he would have been successful. Looking at it now with hindsight, personally, I think it's unlikely, though of course not impossible. It all really depends on how willing the police in Moscow and the State Guard in Moscow would actually be to fight against Wagner and to stand and fight and die. That would have been the big question mark. And while some people think they probably would have fled immediately, I do think that there would have been enough of a fight to really make Wagner pause and be like, okay, are we really going to siege the capital? Is this really going to happen type of thing? But if those special units had broken, uh, had Matt Wagner managed to reach the capital, it's all bets off. There would have been effectively no resistance and you have one of the things people forget and should be emphasized like wagner has a large proportion of convicts in their ranks right huge tracts of russian prisons were emptied out into wagner base camps and you can think that a lot of these convicts they come to moscow and they have let, let's just say the potential to wreak some revenge on the system that they may feel had not treated them the best. All right, guys, now we are really getting into some wild speculation. 
as we enter theory number three. This was a well-organized show in order to get Wagner, Russia's best assault troops, into Belarus and within striking distance of Kiev. So essentially the thinking here is that from Belarus at some point, Wagner and Russia will orchestrate a some sort of second attempt on the Ukrainian capital. And of course, this will be spearheaded by this veteran assault shock corps of troops. And they'll be able to scream out of Belarus and be able to take the capital. Putting aside the dubious prospects of that from a military tactical perspective, what is certainly possible is that Russia at some point could make another attempt Kiev from Belarus, and it could very well include Wagner troops as part of that assault. My big thing here is that if that was your plan, you really didn't need this whole song and dance of this coup to make it happen. You could have found much easier and simpler ways to make it happen that didn't result in your government looking completely and totally incompetent and caught with his pants down and also didn't result in the loss of more than a dozen airmen and, of course, needed military equipment to continue their ongoing war in Ukraine. So while I do think that there may be some merit to this idea that at some point Russia could launch another attempt from Belarus and it could include Wagner as a component of that attack, what I don't think is that this coup was necessary to make something like that happen. All right, now theory four, we're getting to some nice proper tinfoil hat stuff here. This was a 4D stage chess move between, I, I should have written out, between Putin and Prigozhin. So these two guys had orchestrated this thing behind the scenes beforehand to do one of two things, or potentially both things. One, give Putin an excuse to remove Shoigu from power because Shoigu is very close to Putin. They're very like close personal friends from all indications, and he's reluctant to remove him from power for personal reasons, but he as hard as far knows that he's an incompetent defense minister. Prigozhin gives him this excuse to finally remove him from power. And or, or the other potential goal of this 40 chess move is to coax Ukraine into launching their full counteroffensive. So effectively, this was like a staged event to make Ukraine think that the Russian lines were weak or weaker than they really were and try and get them to really commit to some sort of full counteroffensive action. And again, for me, the real reason I have a tough time believing something like this is because this whole Wagner coup makes Putin look so weak because, again, it opens that door to, be, to him being attacked politically on the right flank, something he really hasn't had to worry about in his tenure as leader of Russia. He's always been able to have that right flank pretty locked down and, and have their support reliably counted on. Maybe not so much anymore. While I can see some of these as potential goals for Russia, again, I think there are far easier ways and ways that involve much less destruction and harm than what happened over June 23rd and 24th. I don't know. So one thing about this one is that we haven't seen any 
movement from Putin to remove Shoigu. By all indications, he's going to stand by his man. And that is something I, I predicted in the last episode that particularly with this direct challenge, even if Shoigu was like the worst, most incompetent defense minister in the world, which definitely could be in the running, even if he was the absolute worst in the world, Putin is now in a position where he's got to stand by his man no matter what. He cannot look weak, cannot look like he's caving. So he's got to support him. And in terms of the Ukrainian counteroffensive, we have seen basically a pause in Ukrainian counteroffensive actions for the last maybe week or so. And it seems like this pause was to reassess their tactics and try and maybe find new ways to gain some ground because it has definitely been slow going and something that is now finally starting to get me a little bit worried as we continue to move forward into these counteroffensive actions. To me, giving only a 24-hour period to have this happen is not enough time for even if Ukraine wanted to take advantage of this situation, for them to mobilize a, a sufficient enough force of men to organize and plan a mission, to get everything you need together and actually execute something like that in 24 hours, not, not feasible, not possible. So if this were to some sort of stunt to coax Ukraine, it would need to be happening over an extended period of time, at least I think. So if you didn't have your first layer of foil on, you better put it on and you might need a second layer after this one because theory number five, it was all CIA plot. They paid Prigozhin to do this and make Russia look weak. And to be honest, if this were true, and CIA did this, and it was an actual plot by them. Golf clap, like, bravo. That, that is a very effective plot, particularly in terms of your own cost effectiveness. You have to do very little actual meddling in order to make something like this happen. You really only have to influence one guy, and this one guy is able to do an outsized amount of damage to kind of the the image and strongman prestige of Vladimir Putin. So while I think that this one is maybe not that worthy of entertaining on its face, if it were actually true, it would be a phenomenal plot and an ingenious plot by the CIA, something that has would have been and has been extraordinarily effective. And this one will be able to put to rest wherever Progosian probably officially pops up out of if he pops up in L.A. or something like that, or maybe we like never see him again, maybe you can have more speculation about this one. But if he like actually just pops up, he's like, hey, I was in Belarus this whole time. I was just taking a really long nap. Well, we can definitely put this one to bed after that. All right. And now it's time for the final theory. And while this is definitely the most implausible theory, the more I think about it, and I'm sure you guys will feel this way as well, that once I present it to you, it will become more and more plausible, actually, the longer you think about it. Theory number six. This is all part of Jeb's slow and steady plot for world domination. Because we all know that Jeb's got a plan. He's plotting something. He's got a long-term goal. He's got a long-term method for taking over the world and becoming supreme emperor. And when he does eventually succeed... I know that he and I probably won't see eye to eye on a lot of things, but honestly, it probably will be a better world under Jeb's leadership. 
a world with a little bit more kindness, a little bit more understanding, and maybe most importantly of all, a little bit more clapping. All right, guys, unfortunately, I think this is going to have to wrap this episode up for now. If I go any longer, I'm going to start to really regret it when I'm editing it all together. So I think this is going to have to end this episode for now for you guys. Unfortunately, I don't have time for a feel good story today. I'm even more short on time this week than usual. Plus, I've got a little bit something special planned for you guys on Friday. Hoping to, as I have alluded in my previous videos, I want to try and bring a, a gaming video in once a week. I'm trying to reschedule to where I had the old show on, where I had the old Chatter on the Skull show every Friday. I'm hoping to instead have a gaming video every Friday as much as possible. And I'm hoping to kick the ball off this Friday with a video that is going to probably catch some of you guys by surprise, but I think you guys are going to find very informative and interesting and entertaining. So with that, I'm out for now, guys. This has been the Comrade signing off. Until next time, you guys take care.